Bethlehem. What are we going to do with Bethlehem? Bethlehem is the great irony of the Christmas story. When we celebrate Christmas in our modern time and modern tradition, when we think of Bethlehem, I think it conjures up for us the perfect Hallmark Christmas card nativity scene, doesn't it? You know, when we think of Bethlehem, we think of like perfect animals that never smelt bad in their lives, right? We think of like this beautiful manger, this beautiful soft lighting on Mary and Joseph. Mary just having given birth, but looking slim as ever, right? We think of Bethlehem as this calm and peaceful and holy and beautiful place where nothing could go wrong, where the angels gather to sing Kumbaya forever. But Bethlehem, the real Bethlehem, the Bethlehem of the first Christmas was anything but like that. Bethlehem itself was a forgotten town just about five miles south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this incredible city of David. Jerusalem that had the temple. Jerusalem, the place where you would expect the Messiah to come. Not Bethlehem. Bethlehem may be the birthplace of David, but it was just an outpost. In fact, scholars believe that at the time of Jesus' birth, there was only about, say, 20 to 25 families that lived there. That's roughly about 180 to about 220 people. It was a small little place. And we know from the Christmas story that it was a place of a tight-knit community that didn't like outsiders. So when Joseph arrived, despite the fact that Joseph was related to most of the families in that village, none of those families welcomed them. None of the 20 to 25 families that could have opened their homes bothered to do so. Why? Because they were not married and there's Mary pregnant out of wedlock and none of them wanted to suffer the shame of being associated with her. Which really is ironic because Mary is carrying inside of her the hope of the world and Bethlehem essentially closes their doors to it. So much so that they were born, or Jesus was born, in a cave. Not as stable as we often think of it in our modern celebrations. I've actually been to Bethlehem, and I've gone to the very place where they think Jesus potentially was born. It's a grotto under the main temple, or the main sort of cathedral that they have there. And that grotto is dark, and it's cold, and it's gritty, and it's horrible. It's not the place that any of you would choose your son to come into the world. That's Bethlehem. The, the carol we just sung captures it quite profoundly and beautifully. It says this, Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, as silent stars go by, yet in the dark, the dark, grotty, gritty streets shineth this everlasting light. For the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The hopes and the fears. That's a great summary of Bethlehem, the hope that was in Christ Jesus carried in Mary, and yet the fears of a people gripped in the oppression of empire. Bethlehem was dark and cold. Mary and Joseph were rejected and shunned by their own family. That's how the Christmas story actually begins. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, Bethlehem then becomes the one place of the greatest, most horrendous atrocity that is seen in the whole of the New Testament. In fact, Matthew, as he continues his story about the birth of Jesus, takes us into the reality of this atrocity. It was a genocide. 
a genocide happens in Bethlehem. Let me read this to you from Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 16. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in the surrounding vicinity who were just under the age of two years old in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. You want to know what the true Bethlehem Christmas story is about? It's about genocide. It's about a group of people that rejected Mary and Joseph because they didn't want to be associated with the shame of them. And it's about the reality of weeping mothers in a very broken place. Matthew tells us here that Herod, in a fit of jealous paranoia, decides to kill all of the boys under the age of two. Now, scholars generally would say that was probably only about 12 to 20 or so boys. But if you were any of those families, that was the world to you. And and Matthew wants you, right in the midst of all of your, woohoo, it's Christmas time. He wants you to suffer the pain of the injustice of genocide, which really blows my mind. And I wonder whether today you might be able to also imagine what it would have been like to be one of the mothers of Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. Can you imagine if you're one of those mothers and you've spent all this time hearing about a decree that Herod has given and you're worried that one day suddenly you're going to hear it. You're going to hear the, fo- the, the hoofs of the horses of the soldiers coming into Bethlehem. And you know that that's the moment where your child might be taken. And so as you hear the horses, you, you grab your child and you, you wrap your child up in a, in a cloth and, and you tell the child to be as quiet as possible because you don't want the child to be, to be crying. And you try to shush the child and you put it at the back of the room, hoping that when the soldiers come, they won't hear it. And then suddenly there's the knock on the door. Suddenly you know that the soldiers are right there at the front of your door and you open the door hoping that they won't hear the child. But the child is still crying. And so the soldiers come straight in. They grab the child from you and you start to scream. You start to wail. You start to fight back. You say, no, not my child. You can't take my child. And the soldiers storm out of the house and they slam the door. And then you can no longer hear your child screaming and crying anymore. You immediately know that he's gone forever. Oh, sure, there are some angels that sing at Christmas time, but that's also the sound of Christmas. The sound of mothers who lose their sons to the atrocity of genocide and the injustice of an oppressing empire. I wonder if you could imagine what it would have been like to be some of those mothers of Bethlehem. I like to call them the weeping mothers of Bethlehem. Could you imagine how they would feel to know that the coming of the Messiah necessitated the death of their child? I wonder if you could feel what it would have been like for them to think, well, if that is what the coming of the Messiah is all about, then that doesn't sound like a fair exchange to me. Can you imagine how those mothers would have felt when they heard that God showed up in a dream to Joseph and told Joseph about the coming genocide so that Joseph and Mary could escape the death. Could you imagine the questions that might have sat on the mother's heart? Why didn't God give us the dream as well? 
Matthew doesn't shy away from the reality of the hardness of these questions. He doesn't shy away from the reality of what is happening in this story. In fact, he, he could have just put it aside, couldn't he? He could have just wiped away this part of history. He could have said, like, when I present the story of Jesus, I just want the angels. I just want the shepherds. I just want the wise men. I wanted to feel all nice and comfortable. No, he decides that he needs to mention the genocide because he's like, I am not going to allow them to sweep this under the rug of history. When Luke writes his story about the birth of Jesus, he doesn't mention the genocide. And it's almost like Matthew is saying, we will speak up. We will know that this was also a part of the reality of the coming of the Messiah. And by putting it in his gospel, it's like Matthew is saying, I honor those children that were killed. I honor the mothers who are weeping because injustice is a part of our story. That we need to understand that when we come to celebrate the arrival of Jesus, it comes in the context of the most horrendous atrocity that you could imagine. And it's like Matthew is saying, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. That we recognize injustice and we do something about it. That we don't shy from the realities that there is brokenness in the world. There is darkness in the world. And if you want to know what the Messiah is really about... It's about actually changing the injustice for the justice that he would carry. Matthew would say, sit with the weeping mothers of Bethlehem and don't rush to the nice presence under your tree and feel a little bit of the journey that they would have gone through and understand what it is to carry the name of Christ, to be one who's willing to speak up for not just the weeping mothers of Bethlehem, but now the weeping mothers of Hong Kong. To be willing to stand up for, for the vulnerable and the hurting and the marginalized in our place at Christmas time. To be able to say that there are things happening here that we're not happy about, that there are things happening here that are not right, that the voice of the church might rise up, yes, even at Christmas time, and say, enough is enough. Are we willing to sit at Christmas time? with those who carry the scars of injustice and the burdens of brokenness. And as I challenge you with that question, I want you to think about it. And as you think about it, I want you to hear the justice cry of one of the most famous carols that we have. Oh, come, oh, come. Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the sun of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Day spring come and 
Come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here. The justice cries of a psalm saying, we're mourning, we're in exile, and we need you to come, God, and liberate us. Come, God, and change us. And Matthew, as he's, as he's wanting his people to sit in the reality of the genocide that happens in Bethlehem, he wants them to sit there because of what it will do to enable them to see the glory that is to come in Christ Jesus. And in order to make this connection, Matthew does something that is perhaps unprecedented in history. As his final connection to the Old Testament Matthew takes Israel right back to one of the worst atrocities of their history to try to connect that to the current atrocity in Bethlehem in order that he might show them the powerful light of Christ Jesus. And I want to show you how amazing it is and how he does it. Let me show you this from Matthew 2, verse 17. It says, Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. So he's just told us about the genocide. And then he said, this happened to fulfill a prophecy of Jeremiah. And here's the prophecy. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Welcome to the Christmas story. I know you came to a carol service and you were expecting to feel warm and fuzzy. But Matthew embraces the reality That right in the Christmas story, there's weeping and there's mourning and there's Rachel who cannot be comforted. And as you read this quote from Jeremiah, you're probably wondering, how does this fit in at all to the reality of the joy that can be found in Jesus? 
Well, to understand that, you need to go back to Jeremiah itself. Matthew's quoting here from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Now, Jeremiah is a brutally difficult book to read. I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Jeremiah. It's not an easy book. It's the kind of book that gets in your face about your sin and your brokenness. It was a prophetic word that Jeremiah had for Israel at a moment of their greatest pain and suffering, where they were at the mercy of being attacked by Babylon. And Jeremiah has a window of being able to say, hey, if you turn from your sin, if you turn from your brokenness, there can be hope for you again in the future. But he's pretty brutal with them about the stuff that's going on in their lives. So Jeremiah is not an easy, fluffy read. But verse and chapter 31 is the shifting point of Jeremiah. In chapter 31 onwards, Jeremiah begins to speak of a hope. He begins to say that there is a new time and a future where God is going to come and act. And in Jeremiah 31, he actually speaks about that famous idea that a new covenant will happen. That the old covenant was written on stone of tablets, but in time is coming where a new covenant will come for you. And that new covenant will be like the Spirit of God writing on the flesh of your heart. And he begins to say that there is hope for the future. There is stuff that's going to happen that God is going to do that is going to change your perception about who you are, about the world, you're going to have his heart in you, his spirit in you. It's a great chapter. But before he gets all there, he roots them into this moment. And he says, do you remember Rama? And he tells us about a place and a person. The place, Rama, was one of the most famous places in Israel in those days. And it was famous for two things. The first is this. Ramah was the place where Israel fled to just before they were taken into exile in Babylon. Ramah was the place where they gathered to mourn those that had been killed by the warring armies of Babylon. Babylon had come in just previous to this, had actually torn down the walls of Jerusalem, desecrated the temple, and murdered and killed many of the Jewish people. And the remnant of Jerusalem, the remnant of Israel, gathered at Ramah, a small little town just about five miles north of Jerusalem, and they gathered there to weep for the reality that so many of their families, their relatives, and the people that they knew had been killed. It was a place of great mourning, a place of great weeping. It was remembered in their history as that moment. Before the remnant is taken into exile, we met at Ramah and we wept. It's also known for a second thing. Ramah is a very important place in the history of Israel. Because Ramah is the place where Saul was anointed the first king of Israel by Samuel. Which is really fascinating. Because Ramah is honored and thought of in Jewish thinking as the birthplace of the kingdom. The birthplace of the line of kings who would eventually bring the Messiah through the Davidic dynasty. All of that began in Ramah. So Ramah is this incredibly interesting juxtaposition of weeping and worship of a place of pain and hurt and turmoil and a place of hope for the future coming of a king. Then Jeremiah mentions a person, Rachel. This is Rachel of the Genesis time. Rachel, <laughs> sorry. Put that there in case it catches fire. This is Rachel. That would be really dramatic, wouldn't it? We're talking about death. <laughs> That's not planned. If that happens, run. Okay. <laughs> so, no, don't run. <laughs> All right, back on track, back on track. Okay, so 
Rachel is of the Genesis Rachel, second wife to Jacob. Now, Rachel is an interesting character. Rachel is mentioned here because of Rachel's life. She actually died a thousand years before Rama, before the events that took place at Rama. But Jeremiah brings her to those events for a very particular reason. Rachel's life was a difficult life. She, she was the second wife of, of Jacob, but because she was the second wife, she actually wasn't attributed to or given the same kind of privileges as his first wife, Leah, even though Jacob loved Rachel more. And when Jacob got married to Rachel, their great hope was that they would have many kids. Their great hope was that they would be able to father and mother many children through them. But Rachel was barren. Rachel didn't bring any children into the world for many, many years. And the whole time, Leah and her concubines were having lots of kids. You can imagine the indignity of what it would have been for Rachel to desire children, not be able to have children for many, many years and watch all of the other women around her having children with her husband, Jacob. Well, towards the end of her life, she managed to conceive. She actually has two children. Joseph is her first and her second is Benjamin. Now, she actually dies in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. She changes in her last thing that she says, in her dying breath, she changes his name to Ben Omni, which means the man of my sorrow. And why is Rachel sorrowful? Why is she weeping? Because she had great hopes that she would be able to bring into the world a lot of heirs for Jacob. She had great hopes that through her would come a great nation. And on her deathbed, as she's giving birth to Benjamin, as she dies, she's like, my lot has just been sorrow. But God has a way of taking the worst expectations of our lives and doing something amazing through them. See, God has a way of stepping into what we think are our failures and doing something tremendous. Although Rachel would never see it, for the centuries after the birth of Joseph and Benjamin would come the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph would father Ephraim and Manasseh, and they would go on to father the 10 tribes that would go up north eventually. Whereas Benjamin would father all of the sons that were related to the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah that remained south. In other words, all 12 tribes of Israel came actually from Rachel. This is why she was known as the mother of Israel. This is why when Jeremiah speaks about the mourning that's happening in Ramah, speaks about the fact that the children of Israel have been slaughtered by the Babylonians, he brings Rachel into that picture, the mother of all Israel. And he's like, it's as if Rachel is mourning for the death of her children children right here in Rama, and nothing can comfort her. And when Matthew is thinking, what Old Testament prophetic verse can I bring forward to talk about what's happened in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth? Oh, I know. It's Rama again. It's Rachel again. It's as if even now in the first century in Bethlehem, it's like Rachel is mourning for the children of Israel once again. And why is she mourning? She's mourning for both personal reasons and national reasons. Personal reasons because there's been death within her family. National reasons because the line of David must have been broken now. If all of the children have been murdered, then surely the Messiah has been murdered. It's all over. And Matthew is trying to make the point. It's just like Rama all over again. Can you feel it? Can you see it? He's like, do do you feel Rachel's pain? Because here in Bethlehem, they think it's all over once again. Now, I know you came to a carol service to feel good. 
But I want you to know that the story of the darkness of Christmas is where you will find its light. If you really want to know what Christmas is about, then you can't rush from the darkness and the pain of genocide. If you really want to see the light of Christmas, if you really want to know what the true joy of Christmas is, it's actually found when you sit in the darkness for a bit. I love the way actually the N.T. Wright puts this when he writes of Christmas. He says it this way. He says, Christmas is not a reminder that the world is really quite a nice place. It reminds us that the world is a shockingly bad place. Christmas is God lighting a candle and you don't light a candle in a room that's already full of sunlight. And Matthew's trying to bring this painful moment of Israel's Old Testament history into this moment in the first century by sort of saying, hey, look, do you realize what happened here in the midst of the worst thing that we thought could happen to us? God lit a candle. When it was so dark, when it was so broken, when even the children of our mothers were being slaughtered, that's the time when God came. That's the time when God showed up. You want to know what kind of God it is that you serve? You want to know what kind of God it is that is to be worshipped. It is one who does not shrink back from injustice, does not stand back from brokenness, but one who actually moves into darkness to transform it. That's your God, Matthew's saying in his story about the birth of Jesus. He's saying, if you want to know joy, see joy come out of the midst of darkness. God left all of the comfort of heaven and joined the struggle on earth. God came to the backdrop of rejection, loneliness, jealousy, and murder. And that should set your heart on fire. Because that means God can come and show up in our city when we need it. It means that God can come and show up in your family when you need him to. It means that if God chose a dark, damp cave to bring his son into the world, he can choose the darkness of your heart. It means that he can move into the neighborhoods where you need him to move into in your life. It means that he can find you right where you are, right here and right now. No matter how hard things are, no matter how broken it might be, no matter how difficult things might be for you, he can meet you in this moment and he can change and transform you and bring the joy of his life. That's what Christmas is all about. And you can't celebrate Christmas unless you see the lights in the darkness. Are you with me, church? Now, there's something quite profound here that goes beyond just what Matthew is doing and connecting a very painful time of Old Testament story to the painful time of Bethlehem's story. If you go back to Jeremiah 31, although Matthew only quotes verse 15, it's actually verses 16 and 17 of that passage that I think Matthew has in his heart for his people. I want to read it to you from Jeremiah 31, verse 16 onwards. It says this, this is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your, ears, and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They, speaking of the children, will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, 
declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Jeremiah prophesies and he says, it's like Rama again. It's like Rachel is weeping over the death of her children. It's like we think that this is the end. But guess what? With God, there is no end. With God, there is always a new thing. With God, there is always a light breaking into the darkness. Look, your children will return. The exile is not the end of Israel. Basically, Jeremiah is prophesying. When you come out of exile, you'll come back to Jerusalem and you'll have generations going forward. The Davidic line is not broken. The Messiah is not dead. Jeremiah is saying there is a hope for your future. And Matthew goes, that's what I want to say to Bethlehem. And he grabs this passage, he applies it to Bethlehem, and he says, this is the same for you too, weeping mothers of Bethlehem. You think this is your end. You think the Messiah's done. But no, you just watch. He's going to return out of Egypt. He's going to live and teach and do miracles and do all this stuff. He's going to go to the cross and pay for your sin. He's going to rise again into new life. It's all going to happen. There is hope for your future, he's saying to his people. You want to know what Christmas is about? That's what Christmas is about. That there is hope for your future. And just like Jeremiah to his people, Matthew to his people, I want to do this to my people and say over you, this is not the end. Whatever is going on in your life right now, whatever hardship you might be suffering, whatever thing might be taking place, it is not the end. God has not forgotten you. God has not given up on you. He is the light in your darkness. He is the one born into atrocity and adversity. He is the one who flourishes the most when things are difficult. He's the one who shines a light and you don't need a light when the room is full of sunlight. But when you're feeling down, when you're struggling, when things are overwhelming, that's Christmas. That's a good story for us now. (laughs) And this is an amazing thing that it says here in Jeremiah. He says this. He says, restrain your voice from weeping. Now on the surface, it sounds like he's saying, oh, just stop weeping. Like, why are you weeping? You shouldn't weep. It's not what it's saying, okay? In the Hebrew, the word restrain there is actually the word that is better translated to be like, ref- like retrain or reframe. In other words, change your voice. In other words, there is a season and a moment and a time where it's right to weep. It was right for Rachel to weep over Rama. It was right for the mothers of Bethlehem to weep over the loss of their children. It's not like God was showing up and saying, ah, just get over it. It's not a big deal, right? This was a painful tragedy and Matthew sits in it. God sits in it. That's fine. But what he's also saying is this. When you know that the Messiah is with you, it gives you the chance. It makes you in a time where you can now retrain your voice, reframe your voice so that you're not just weeping, but you're also rejoicing. So you're not just crying out for injustice, but you're also speaking up for freedom. So you're not just, you know, walking in the darkness, but you're also singing about a light that has come. Refrain your voice. Take your voice and make it sound something. Align yourself to the light of Christ. Find the joy of Christmas welling up inside of you and sing as loud as you can because even though the times are dark, we will declare that he will return. That he is coming back. See, there is joy even in the midst of the hardest and darkest of shadows. It blows my mind to think that the, that the one boy that escaped the clutches of Herod is the only boy that can comfort Rachel. He's the only person who can comfort you. 
He's the only one who can birth that joy inside of you. That really is the message of Christmas. He's the only one that can retrain and reframe your voice so that you're not just wailing and weeping, but you're also rejoicing. I love that carol. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Because it doesn't shy from the Satan's tyranny. It doesn't shy from the reality of sin. That carol doesn't shy from the darkness of death or even from the reality of hell. And yet at the end of each of those dark verses comes rejoice, rejoice. In other words, retrain, reframe your voice so that you might actually speak of the beauty that is found in a light that comes in darkness. May you rise up at Christmas time. May you not shy away from the realities of the hardness of life and the brokenness of this world, but may it not get you down. May instead you find the joy that is only able to be in you because Christ has come. That's Christmas. That's the promise of better days. That's why we spent four weeks taking a look at the Old Testament. Because I want you to feel and know and see the beauty of that first Christmas so that your rejoicing finds its profundity even in your pain. Can we rejoice? Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you. Maybe you'd open your hands as we pray. Father, I thank you so much for the men and women in this room, for those online watching right now. Father, I thank you so much for the power that there is in your story of birth. Thank you, Lord, that Matthew didn't shy, didn't try to sweep an atrocity under its rug and pretend it didn't happen. I'm grateful that he dipped into some painful moments of the Old Testament, showed us a woman who died thinking that her life had come to nothing, who you would then over centuries turn into the greatest of all people, your people. And Lord, I thank you that the stories of the people in this room, though some of them may be quite dark, though some in this room may be carrying considerable pain, hardship, hurt, while each one of us understands the darkness of sin and the struggles that we can find ourselves in, we will rejoice. We will find joy rising up in us And we know that as we exclaim your joy, even in the brokenness we're struggling with, that that is the message of Christmas. Christ, come, Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, I pray over each person here that as they celebrate Christmas this year, they would do so reframing and retraining their voice to be able to give you glory no matter what is happening for them in this time. Lord, we worship you. We honor you. We love you so much. We have so much to sing about, so much to be joyful about. We thank you that you're doing that here, right here, by your Spirit in this moment. Rejoice, rejoice. May your heart be a fire for Christ.